Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and joining the show today is Stephanie Copeland, managing partner at Four Points Funding. She joins us today from Denver, Colorado. Stephanie, it's great to get you back on the show. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having us again. Uh, it's been a couple of years and lots have happened. Between, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot's transpired over the last couple of years since you and your partner, Chris Montgomery, did an Opportunity DB webinar. Uh, one of the first ones we ever did, actually, a couple of years back. Right. Uh, early in 2020, and you were also on the podcast back then. So it's it's great to have you back on the Opportunity DB platform and the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'll be sure to link to previous Four Points funding appearances in the show notes for today's episode. You can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. But Stephanie, for now, let's dive in. So we're four years now into the Opportunity Zones tax policy. Uh, what has Four Points funding accomplished in those first four years. I know uh, you have been up to a lot of work over there in Colorado. Yeah, it's, you know, um, going the last four years, we spent kind of a mixed bag of time doing the things that you have to do with an Opportunity Zone fund. One is fundraising. The second is identifying um, really high quality and um, particularly high quality for this particular uh, equity type investments. And third is a lot of education. So. We have been, um, we've actually invested about $80 million of equity across um, the more nascent part, the more out, you know, rural parts of Colorado, thematically in multifamily housing. So we've got about a million square feet under development. Um, we actually, as of this quarter, we have 385 units that are operational. So mm -hmm. that we've uh, retired some of that square feet under development and moved them into operations. Um, and we have, um, we've also invested in about seven campsites, which sound like kind of non-adjacent um, investment opportunities. But we found is that if we're already in a market, being in the market on, with another kind of real estate backed operating business makes a lot of good sense for the team with regard to synergy. So we've got about um, seven campsites, all are up, up and running, operational. We've done a lot of development there and they're, they're doing quite well. And I think, um, you say it's been four years. I think the pandemic has both made it kind of 30 seconds, but also, you know, on the one hand, it feels like it's been 30 seconds or less than a year ago. On the one hand, it feels like it's been decades. So mm -hmm. um, we are, we're pretty proud of putting this all to work, but we've got a lot of hard work in front of us. Sure. No, it's great that you've got, uh, you know, those few hundred units already operational and online. It's uh, That's been a really neat part about covering this industry since uh, mid yeah, I guess about middle of 2018 is is when Opportunity yeah. DB came into existence. Is nothing had been built by then. Everybody was just starting to pencil in the projections, and you know, having different fundraising efforts for you know projects far out into the future. And and now we're actually kind of uh, seeing a lot of these units, a lot of these uh, properties and projects all across the country actually get stabilized and leased up, right. which is uh, which is great to see. So uh, another great success story 
for Opportunity Zones from Four yeah. Points funding. Uh, as far as Opportunity Zones as a whole go, just the entire tax policy, the incentive, whatever you want to call it, what lessons have you learned? I know you you probably had some perceptions yeah. going into um, what you were doing at, at Four Points funding. Have any of those perceptions been confirmed or what has been debunked uh, in the intervening four years since the uh, tax policy was first rolled out? Sure. You know, we didn't we didn't really know yet how investors were going to think about the the opportunity zone rules for them as investors vis-a-vis the different timing of investments that would come into play. Meaning we initially thought we were going to roll out a series of funds every six months. And we Mm -hmm. did that because we thought you know, our investors would want to be only six months apart from any other investor in the fund, meaning, you know, because of the timing, how long the whole period for Opportunity Zone investments um, really starts the last day, the last dollar goes into the investment slash into the fund. And so that was our first um, kind of thought. We ended up ditching that thought pretty quickly because it's just too laborious and it distracts too much from the actual development that you need to do and putting the money to work. And so we moved to kind of vintage year funds. Um, So that was kind of the first thing I would say we were wrong. We pivoted quickly and now we're we're in the middle of raising our fifth fund, um, which will be for the cohort of 2023. And that was, that really was a guess Based on investor reaction, we now have a lot of data on how investors are really thinking about this and how really what their tolerance level is for hold periods. Um, The second thing I would say that has really been confirmed is thematically, we just knew that we could go find um, nascent areas of demand and use the opportunity zone investments, both create outsized returns, but also also impact positively a problem in some of these smaller communities we're having which is of course, and it's been in the headlines for a number of years now, the lack of, of housing. And I'll use the small a affordable affordable housing, meaning not affordable as defined by the government, but affordable to the income levels that are in that community. And so we build to about the median income. That's the product type that we build. Um, we don't try to lead the market in pricing. We don't try to compete with subsidized housing. We're kind of in that middle area. and. Um, and we thought there was a real pent up demand for that. And that's that's certainly been borne out. Um, and we think that that's going to continue to be an opportunity, although navigating that in the backdrop that we're sitting in today is a little more tricky than it was when debt was essentially free. <laughs> you know, the cost your cost of capital outside of equity was very, very low. Right, right. Well, I want to shift uh, gears and talk about the economic backdrop that we're facing right now uh, in this country and, re- and really worldwide, but right. you know, we're, we're, we're in a bear market. The, the broader equities markets are, are down, you know, between call it 20 and 30% since the beginning of the year, very high inflation and, um, also rapidly rising interest rates. What impact does all of this have on opportunity zones? You know, what was, um, with, with, when opportunity zones were enacted, we knew it would take some time for the market to really understand them and the, to create kind of a, a systematic approach to opportunity zones where people said, okay, it's you have to improve you know, the, the investment by, by 1x. You have to do certain things that really lends opportunity zone in, um, investments to greenfield development, kind of de novo, high growth 
development because you can't just invest and allow, you can't park capital. You really mm -hmm. have, capital has to be catalyzing. And um, in a backdrop where it's taken, you know, four or five years, frankly, a couple of years to even get the rules out and then a few years, you know, to really form the market, people were just getting used to thinking about returns and how much the incentive, at, incentive added to the return and what the real benefit was. So, so two things the economic backdrop is doing that are kind of most top of mind for me. One is um, when people are losing money in the stock market, they're less likely to think about where they're going to put their capital gains <laughs> because there aren't just there just aren't as many in period, you know, in the time. That doesn't mean there isn't plenty of liquidity sitting on the sidelines. It's just a sentiment issue. And and it certainly becomes a different conversation. And that's that's a whole new conversation that's starting up. The second thing is when you're underwriting deals and you've gotten used to a certain cost of capital, and in fact, your deals that you underwrote a few years ago expected a particular refinance rate um, once it was once it was stabilized, that's been blown up. And so you're looking at yield on costs relative to treasuries. You're looking at all kinds of debt service coverage ratios that you never thought you'd have to contemplate because your cost of capital has gone up in such a short period of time so dramatically. And I think there are so many people that that believe or the conversations I'm in are always debating, when is it going to come back down? I think you have to get to the point where you're saying, I don't know that it will. And that's, it won't, we might necessarily be in this kind of spike we're in right now, but I think we're going to have to get used to a normalized rate that's higher than what we've been used to in the past come decade, decade and a half. The industry and really got spoiled, right? With really the spoiled. very low interest rate environment for you know a yeah. decade or more. I mean, it, it was actually not, not very natural for interest rates to be that low for that long. That's right. And you have a, again, you have a, an environment that's kind of normalizing, not necessarily going out of normal, but mm -hmm. it's just done it very, very quickly. And so when you have business cases and underwriting that, that are set up on a certain expectation and that rug is pulled out from under you in the middle of your underwriting, it just means you have to look at things again from a different dimension. Now, there are two things that are at play, particularly when you're building in real estate. One is what's your cost of capital? And then is what's your cost of construction? all of those relative to the rents. So we've got these competing interests where um, obviously the higher the cost of capital, theoretically the slower um, construction will be, that will take some time for that to get into the market and be reflected in lower pricing. And so right now we're still in the market with high rates and high pricing. So we don't have relief on either side. The only pressure point that you can that you can pin then is rents. And rents have gone up so dramatically in the past several years that I'm not sure how much more room they have to go. In fact, they're coming down in many markets without starting to be super predatory and or really limiting demand. So the um so right now, you know, you're thinking about you can't really take rents up more, you know, you're not going to see 20, 30% rent increases in a year most probably in the next couple of years. You've got a high cost of capital and you don't have construction pricing that is yet abated or at least slowing down in its increase. And so we're just seeing a lot of deals just fall out. And we're seeing a lot of deals, just people just slow way, way down. The unfortunate part of that is that limits supply. And when you have limited supply in these markets, you either have higher prices or people start leaving the market. Um, and that's, that is going to be a, kind of some perverse outcomes that exist, but I think from the Fed's perspective is worth it and some of the pain that we're going to go through in order to slow down inflation. Um, and so I could wax poetic about that for a long time, <laughs> but I think really what you have to do is make sure that whatever you're investing in, you have to look really deeply at a sub-market level. 
can you stress test the investment and make sure that it still holds up? Would you be happy with it in a multitude of scenarios, including an unlevered, completely unlevered scenario? Right. Well, I found uh, I found it really interesting. One of the last things you said there, the Fed is raising interest rates uh, to combat inflation. But at least in the real estate development world, that might end up um, you know, constraining supply even further, which would drive housing costs up even more. So at least that part of the inflation calculation might be um, under some some upward pressure for some time to come. It's, I know it's kind of hard to 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 contain all these issues that the Fed is trying to combat right now, and their their primary cause or their primary purpose is to lower the general CPI. But uh, it is it will be interesting to see how it affects the housing supply and the housing market going forward over the next several years. It's it's yeah. certainly uh, rather unprecedented what they're doing in terms of these huge seventy five basis point in uh, interest rate bumps over the last several months here. And tightening money supply at the same time. I mean, you're, you're yes. theoretically doing that on both parts, but you have, you've got, um, in a, again, I, I think all of us are just saying, gosh, we've got, uh, you know, historically low unemployment rates. And there's all, it's all these things that this, that will lag and can create, um, so unemployment, the, the impacts of this will lag, you know, that will happen later. Um, construction pricing will come down, but that will happen later. And, and there's always a little bit of um, disconnection and dislocation in the market when you're going through this kind of pivot where you have things that shouldn't exist at the same time, but they do because you're going through this dislocation. And I, I, the, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, when you think about renting versus owning, you know, clearly ownership is getting more expensive until housing prices come down. Mm-hmm. And that will be, again, a sort of a long-term, more lagging indicator. I think for the next couple of years, we're going to have a lot of unwinding to do to do there. And and then not to say what's the Fed going to do, again, I get across across a global backdrop, you know, across a, that's facing di- diff, in some ways different um, issues that we're facing. I just one of the things that I think has been super interesting is that you know we're going through inflation and it we have to we have to acknowledge that so much of the inflation that we are experiencing has been on the supply side and not necessarily demand side. Now we put a lot of stimulus in the economy and that created the demand side, but I, I truly believe that many of the drivers were on the supply side itself, at least from a core inflationary standpoint. Yeah, I think the uh, the COVID pandemic and our response to it certainly didn't help matters there. Correct. Uh, you know, just to pick up one other thing you mentioned earlier, the, just kind of how the starting and stopping of the opportunity zone industry going forward, uh, you know, it took took a couple years for the industry to get rules, um, regulations around the legislation, and then right when we had the uh, regulations, we were interrupted by COVID, and then we started humming along again, and then and then this uh, the economy kind of turned south, so it, it's kind of yeah. been a um, several fits of starting and stopping since OZs got going. But Stephanie, I'm curious to hear what. Uh, what is Four Points funding developing going forward? It, it sounds like most of what you're doing is median level income housing. Uh, I, I don't know if you might refer to that as workforce housing or, or lowercase a affordable housing. Yeah. Are you doing more of that going forward or do you have anything else planned? No, that's that's what we, we really like that backstop because we believe it sits core in the middle of where household formation is coming into play. And, and this kind of, you know, 
the, you'll have a constant in and outward uh, amount of supply or sorry, demand just because people either moving into or up from affordability, affordable housing are moving into um, uh, for sale or ownership. And so we like, we are continuing to get on the path of little a affordable housing, workforce housing, middle income housing in these markets that we're going to. And the things that we look for in the markets are not necessarily, we want to be in non um, NFL markets. We want to be in markets that are adjacent um, and have very, very clear infrastructure elements that will continue to attract population. So I want to make sure there is a good university nearby. There is a, like in the case of, of Colorado, we have a lot of resort adjacent communities that have a ton, tremendous amount of need for workforce in the resorts, but not an affordability of housing and an availability of affordable housing in those markets. And then I also want to see things like markets where you're fairly near a good airport, you're really close to good healthcare, et cetera. So we, we try to make sure we're not going, you know, super remote, but we want to be kind of in the under radar emerging markets, particularly around Colorado as our population disperses outside of the core metro areas of Denver. Um, right. So in, in Colorado, what are some of those those markets that you like? So the um, a couple of markets that are our first two markets I really loved. We built in Grand Junction, which is on the furthermost western part of the state. Mm -hmm. Largest hospital between here and Salt Lake City, between Denver and Salt Lake. Growing population, 11,000 uh, student university there that is affiliated with the University of Colorado, Colorado Mesa University. Um, big hospital system, big employer, I, uh, sorry, big airport as well, an expanding airport with many uh, direct flights in and out on a very major thoroughfare, I-70 across the U.S. And so it has all of those kind of infrastructure backdrops. It also sits on some of the world-class mountain biking trails in the country slash world, which draws a lot of people in, both from a visitation and eventually from wanting to live there. That, that economy is actually diversified quite a bit away from oil and gas into engineering software and other um, and other uh, businesses that has also diversified the labor supply, which we really like. The second market is, is a different kind of market, but equally strong for the same reason. We think there's sustainable demand for the market is a market kind of down valley from Aspen called Glenwood Springs, also off of I-70, very, very close uh, and creates a lot of workforce. Uh, it's a labor a labor supply market into to Aspen. And we built there right on top of the transit hub so that workforce could easily get up and down the valley um, to their work. And that that um, that um, um, market also has very little uh, supply coming online. And so it's, it's very difficult to build in the market, which we also like. Um, the other markets are uh, less known uh, or less known nationally, but we're building near Estes Park, which has um, is at the base of Rocky Mountain National Park, 4 million visitors a year. We're building in Durango, which is um, this kind of oasis of very, very strong uh, population migration coming in. Again, great college there, um, very strong um, entrepreneurial ecosystem, and also very close to skiing to tell you right into um, a lot of the mountain rest resorts in the Southwest. And then we're building in some other parts of the state that are less well known, but have a similar type of tailwinds. That's great. So I want you to imagine now, Stephanie, that you're talking directly to a policymaker 
who needs to make a decision on whether or not he or she supports the OZ legislation or OZ extension going forward. How would you sell the OZ program to that individual? And and if I could lead you a little bit, what positive impacts primarily have your projects had on communities so far? And would those projects have been as impactful, but for Opportunity Zone funding? Well, I think there's, there's two things I would say. One, we wouldn't have existed as a fund unless I'd had a captive audience looking for my types of investment. And this, the the incentive really gave the opportunity for new intermediaries like me to come into the market and say, I, I'm going to build my market around um, taking advantage of this incentive and impacting the communities in a, in a beneficial way. So we think that absent the OZ investment, many investors like us wouldn't have come into the market at all. You kind of first and full stop. And as I've said, you you mentioned there were so many fits and stops across um, the market, but it still had unbelievable success from an investment into the census tracts, these 8,700 census tracts that were designated across the U.S. And there was a Novogratic conference last week I was listening to. It it was in the tens of billions of dollars. And I want to I can't remember the exact number, but it has been, it's been an unbelievably successful investment. Now, are all of those investments positive for the communities? I, I, I can't say, but you have to know that absent this incentive, the vast majority, the super majority of those investments would not have, have happened. For us, um, the housing that we're building has, one, gone so much faster than it otherwise would have. It, it exists when it otherwise wouldn't have. Um, we kicked off a big, in Grand Junction, we were the first in to, to really start investing in opportunity zones there. And now there's a lot of people behind us doing the same thing, which we think is great. And we think that there needs to be more over time um, coming in and incented in this way that where investors will let you underwrite to a return they otherwise wouldn't let you underwrite to, to, towards, and particularly holding it for a long period of time. Um, so I would say one it's 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 a really brilliant policy. It has its flaws, like all policy does, and I think many of those are being addressed in some of the potential upcoming legislation that we're hoping is passed. And we're hoping it's passed because we think the market needs more time to percolate, particularly against all the fits and stops that we've had in the background. Absolutely. Well, I'll ask you more about the legislation toward the end of today's episode, sure. but uh, wanted to turn my attention now to your time prior to joining Four Points Funding. You were in former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper's office, and you were responsible for nominating the Opportunity Zones in Colorado. Uh, was there anything unique about your state's approach to doing that? Well, I think we were all, by the way, we had 90 days, maximum 120 days to make it a very quick turnaround time. It was right? a very quick turnaround. So yeah. I don't fault anyone, any of any of the states and what they did. But we we kind of looked at this taking a step back. And and Governor Hickenlooper is actually really catalytic in this. He said, listen, let's let's start with the end in mind. Let's say this incentive is meant to catalyze things that otherwise wouldn't occur on the positive way. So let's take a look at all of our, we had 500 eligible census tracts. Take a look at all of them and just start indexing them based upon um, investability, um, adjacent infrastructure, uh, and then on the flip end of that, distress, and really look at what does um, where are we going to be able to have a Goldilocks impact on a particular census tract. So, for example, there are many eligible census tracts 
where the train had already left the station. They were already on a high path to growth, already a lot of investments coming in. And this actually would have just fueled a fire that was already burning really, really hot. We eliminated those. We essentially said, hey, we've seen in the last five years, this kind of growth rate even though in 2010, these census tracts were distressed, we've seen them move out of that. So let's let's eliminate those. On the flip side of that, there were a lot of census tracts that had zero ability to attract any capital. I mean, nothing that we could actually think of or even um, make up in our minds. And so we essentially weighted those using this index pretty low. And then we looked at um, the rest of the census tracts and we just stacked rank them based on the, based on the, the, the way the, the algorithm, it's not quite an algorithm, the index application um, was applied. From there, we then did, did a lot of qualitative interviews across the state with county county commissioners, um, municipal leaders, enterprise zone managers, where there was a lot of overlap, and essentially said, what would you do with this? How would you use it? How would you figure it out? And that moved things around a little bit. And mostly because the state had a strategy of really trying to continue to accept population growth without overcrowding, dispersion, dispersion across the state um, of population was, was a very strong kind of um, thing on everyone's mind. We thought about how do we move people into the more remote markets? And I'll, I'll call them rural markets, but these aren't tiny remote markets as, as the way you think about it. Move them more across the state so as to be able to continue to accept the population growth without the overcrowding that can exist in the, in high dense um, urban areas. And so we moved, we shifted some of the zones into the rural parts of the state that had high investability index scores. Oh, that's and, great. And that's I know. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your state certainly gave a lot of thought to, uh, to the nomination process, uh, probably more than, than a lot of others did. I know that <laughs> EIG held you guys up as, as a, as a star child, so to speak, star pupil under the yeah. OZ program. So um, great, great work there that you and your team in the governor's office did way back in, I guess it was, uh, when the beginning of 2018, 2018, 18, yeah. 2018 right after the 2017, uh, tax cut and jobs act was passed. And the, and by the way, EIG, I can't say enough, um, enough about the work they've done in helping to catalyze this incentive and continuing to do that. So they were also really thoughtful with us because again, we had a very short period of time, so it wasn't. You know, it wasn't just our own, you know, our own thoughts going into this. We had really great people helping us do that as well. Absolutely. Uh, no, EIG is fantastic. I, I yeah. think my my viewers and listeners probably agree if they're familiar yeah. with their work. Oh, let's let's move along to um, to opportunity zones. Who's investing in them? Uh, I guess question for you: Are opportunity zones becoming more and more institutionalized as the marketplace? matures? Do, are, are, do investors really understand how to utilize OZs yet? Or does a huge gap still exist, a huge knowledge gap? What are all your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I think I think there are still big pockets of knowledge gap. I was on the phone with an investor on Thursday of last week who I was introducing Opportunity Zones for the first time. And they had a fairly large game they were working with. Um, most of our investors are high net worth individuals that have, um, that just that you know where tax management is part of their investment thesis you know and what mm-hmm. they do and this is a really um a really good way to blend you know kind of tax efficiency with um real estate investing in a way that that goes beyond what a 1031 exchange would would do or other kinds of development real estate development would do um and so i think that 
there are, it feels to me like the whole market knows about opportunity zones, but I'm surprised every day when I talk to investors who are just getting to understand it, even, even accountants, even, you know, very, very highly qualified. So it, it just takes, I mean, this isn't something, this is, this is not something that has been a big brand campaign rolled out in the U.S., you know, where people are seeing this over and over again. So it absolutely is in the pockets of investors we're working with. Yes, it's becoming more well-known, but there's still a large swath of the population that doesn't understand it, that could benefit from it. Um, so I think there's a lot more room to grow, to go. Um, and we, the kinds of invest, investors seeing, as I mentioned, mostly high net worth, um, individuals or other funds that have kind of mission aligned or thematically asset class aligned targets that come in alongside us. We do that as well. Right. We saw a lot of, uh, I don't know, something you just said made me think we saw a lot of, uh, commercials for crypto during <laughs> last year's Super Bowl. Maybe we need a, a one or two opportunity zone commercials for the Super Bowl coming up <laughs> this year. Yeah, February. maybe, maybe that's right. I, I, you know, I don't think that we're going to, um, you know, it's pro again, crypto can probably at some point will hit every, you know, every point on the tail of the, you know, consumerism. I'm not sure opportunity zones will. So maybe there's not a, the real, be you know, a benefit to do that. But I would like to see it become more um, uh, commonplace, you know, a common understanding of how people use it. And mostly because um, when anything's new and it seems like, and it's getting headline news around, it's just about, you know, making the rich richer or doing things. A lot of mm -hmm. the benefits are lost in the noise and you people don't want to share. It's not as interesting to share the positive benefits. It's lots more interesting to talk about the nefarious work that goes on in all those evil people. And I think the longer time we have, the more obvious it's going to become the positive impact this has had. So I think that um, we just got to keep on doing the work we're doing. And again, we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, but I'm really really hoping that the legislation that is, you know, it's been proposed is enacted. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm trying to use this podcast platform as uh, one small voice in the noise to <laughs> try ahead. to push some positive stories <laughs> forward. Uh, well, let's turn our attention now to legislation for the last few minutes of our time together cool. here today. Stephanie, what are some, well, we talked about it a few minutes ago, but, but what are your overall thoughts on the legislation? And uh, I, I know you hope you're hopeful that it will pass. Um, when do you think it might? Uh, and by um, the way, for the record, we are recording this um, uh, toward the, uh, let's see, where are we? We're, we're, we're in late October, late October. We're a couple weeks away from election day. So yeah. I'm not exactly sure when this episode might air, but that's, that's when we're talking right now. Well, I'm hopeful, although I, and I, I'm not, a, I could not handicap this. So I, I'm hopeful that it passes before the end of the year, potentially mm -hmm. even in the lame duck session. But I don't, I don't know enough about what's going on day to day on the hill to to say whether that's possible or not or probable. Um, I, I've also um, been monitoring quite a bit with the help of some of our partners, and it seems like the the uh, modification itself has bipartisan support. I like that it has um, it has reporting requirements which are on the funds. It is not. Um, it's not a standard that you have to operate against. It's just you have to tell people what you're doing with the fund. We, we think it's is very positive. It does eliminate some of the, the opportunity zones that maybe don't really need the catalyst anymore. And it gives the states the opportunity to replace those. And most importantly, it just gives us a little bit more time. So it just delays the um, expiration of the of the investment period, the starting investment period. And it gives the time for the market to form a little bit more. Um, I think that that kind of iteration on any policy is both natural and very, very good. 
Um, I, like I said, I hope that we could have see it before the end of the year, whether that's probable, I, I couldn't say, you know, if not then, then probably towards the beginning of next year. Right. Well, yeah, hopefully it does get passed uh, sooner rather than later. Fingers right. crossed. Stephanie, it's been great speaking with you today. Thanks for all of your insights. Before we go, if we have any listeners or viewers out there who want to learn more about you or what you're doing at Four Points Funding, where can they go to learn more about you? Sure. If you go to fourpointsfunding.com, that's where our website that has all of our funds, our current fund we're raising for, as well as um, all of our projects and what we've invested in. A little bit about us as partners. We now have close to 20 people on the team. And uh, we'd love to uh, have you come visit the site and, and hear from you anytime. And really appreciate the time, Jimmy. It's, it was great to talk to you. Fantastic. And for our listeners and viewers out there, as always, I will have show notes available for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I'll have links to all of the resources that Stephanie and I discussed on today's show. And also please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Just search for Opportunity Zones podcast. Stephanie, again, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>